All right. I just heard Canada. Okay. I said, good morning. Welcome to Canada. <laughs> uh, even though I'm in Connecticut, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's basically Canada. Yeah, it's cold. As cold as Canada. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah. I mean, I always like telling people this is true that I, uh, you know, I grew up about an hour and changed north of the nearest Canadian border since to get the fastest way to get to Canada for the part of Michigan I was from is to drive, you know, is to drive south to the Detroit Windsor Crossing. Wow. <laughs> you have to drive south to get to Canada. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I, grew, I grew up in Syracuse. We would go to Canada a lot, like when we were 18, because you could do all kinds of grown-up stuff there. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, that was a big thing. I remember, like, uh, so at least in Ontario at the time that I was, you know, that age, like the drinking age was 19, so yeah. you, um, so that was like, there were definitely bars in Windsor on Friday night when there were like two thirds Americans, you know, <laughs> coming, <laughs> coming over for that. But, uh, yeah. Oh, well, don't I, you wish, don't you wish you had stayed now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess. On the one hand, I guess if World War Three happens, uh, Canada is probably not going to be a direct target. But uh, so in that sense, I, I do. On the other hand, I think uh, we had Cole James Cash out here a little while back to talk about the trucker stuff, and um, and that definitely convinced me that the the rate of like um, lefty you know, Canadians is over. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It just it just seemed like it's like okay, so that doesn't sound that different from what would happen here, you know? Like so, yeah. I don't know. How long is it until their healthcare will be privatized completely? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the good news there is that that is like really hard politically. Like once people have it, you know, they'll they'll uh, they'll they'll cling onto it, you know, right. for uh, dear life. You'll have but... to pry their healthcare out of their cold dead hands. Exactly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I am joined by Juliana Forlano, uh, and we're going to pretend we didn't already do this. Uh, yes. Juliana, who are, who are you? Hello. I'm happy to be here, Ben. I always love my conversations with you. I host Act TV's uh, Act Now program, where we cover sort of what's going on in the protest world, uh, left protests. We don't care that much about what's going on the right protest. Um just to kind of amplify some voices that don't really get out there much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have also functioned in my lifetime as a professor of media studies, a stand-up comedian, and a psychotherapist. So there's that. <laughs> you would think I'm much older than I am. I just tend to stay busy. <laughs> I tend to stay busy. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I hear that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I... I I feel like I've had a really strange week because within a few days of each other, uh, I had my, this like academic, like this philosophy book from an academic press that like nobody's going to read because it's like a, a, you know, academic publishing being what it is. Uh, like, but, but it's, I mean, it was like great that it came out because it's like years in the works, but like, it's like, it's also out of the range of things I do. Definitely the one that's going to be for the smallest audience, you know. What, it's what this, is it like, about? What's the topic? Uh, so it's called Logic Without Gaps and Gluts, and it's uh, it's about the basically stuff like the liar paradox. Like if I say what I'm saying right now is not true, 
And uh, the same. (laughs) Well, which is it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, which is more or less what my dissertation was about. So it's like, okay, so within a few days of each other, that book comes out for like the 20 nerds who will read it. Congratulations. No, there's a lot of nerds out there. Thank you. And uh, and then uh, and then that was like within a few days of going on the Joe Rogan experience. That that is definitely yeah. I so watched you on there, not the whole thing, but I watched a lot of it, and uh, I thought that was amazing how you got him to agree to like. I mean, he agreed to like a whole bunch of stuff, like the CRT argument and all of that. That was pretty. pretty yeah, man. cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was the most surprising one, right? Because, like, a lot of the economic stuff in the first 45 minutes, uh, like, he was, you know, he went pretty far with it. He was pretty enthusiastic, but that's also stuff that he has, you know, to some extent said before. I mean, I think it's useful just to talk about it since I think, you know, I think that most people who, you know, let's put it this way. um, I think by the time my episode happened, there had probably been, like, a lot of, you know, Sure, mostly. How like, far you... in advance were your like? Was your episode booked? Did he just go like when everyone was like, "Hey, what's up with Joe Rogan becoming a fascist?" He's like, "Who are the lefty people? Let's get some lefties on here." Like, how far in advance were you booked? Uh, not that far. It was the uh, it was the uh, it was the Super Bowl that night. Is the is the night I got the message about it? So okay, okay. Uh, so uh, he probably did do that thing, but that's good though. Uh, yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I really don't know what what it was in particular that inspired him or somebody at the show to uh, to book me. Like the initial message wasn't super informative about that, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I did. Um, I mean, it was basically just like, do you want to come on the Joe Rogan Experience to talk about your book? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I took my like after I got the message. Um. I like carried my laptop over to the couch where my wife was watching the game, and uh, she told me that I looked so shocked. She thought like somebody had died, you know, like I was I was definitely yeah. not, not expecting <laughs> that. But um, but yeah, I mean it's it's um, so yeah. Regardless of of what the you know the motives might or might not have been, um, I think by the time people listen to to this episode. Um, I mean, I know it's, you know, there are leftists will go on there, but like, it's, you know, I mean, I think you've probably, if you just like kind of listen to the occasional Joe Rogan episode or whatever, you've probably listened to like 10 episodes with like Jordan Peterson and people like that. And, uh, yeah. uh and like a hundred episodes of like comedians and, you know, UFC fighters and whatnot before the last like episode that you heard where, you know, anything like this was being discussed. Right. So like, I think yeah, it's right. a, I think it's a useful thing to do, but also like, yeah, I mean, I think he, yeah, I think he, I think even on the economic stuff, you know, like he went further than I was expected. And I think just that first like 45 minutes of just like, you know, talking about all the sort of core democratic socialist stuff and getting him to, you know, enthusiastically agree with it. And even like postal banking, which he was like slightly weirded out by at first. He was like, why would he do that? Post office. Uh, Like that. (laughs) It's a good question. Most people don't, really know why you would do that at the post office and then no, I think, people are like oh obviously yeah exactly I mean <laughs> I think both halves of that are like probably what most people's reaction would be to to hearing that suggestion so um and but then yeah like even later on like we you know like like uh you know there's like a section where we're talking about trans stuff and like on like the sort of uh the 
on like the women's sports issue, which I kind of tried to blow off at first. And then he was like, no, no, but like, let's talk about it. I was like, okay, all right. All I, right. I, I, yeah. I, I don't really want to, you know, yeah. but I will. Yeah. Right. You're like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just a God to get Twitter doused. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I kind of, you know, I don't know. Maybe this makes me a bad person, but I don't actually stay up at night one way, you know, worried about the athletic integrity of like uh, UPenn women swimming. Like right. that's not a, you know, that's, that's not yeah. a, you know, high priority. Yeah, for... it's not a high priority. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but whatever, we went back and forth about that a little bit and, you know, and I, I don't think, um, I don't know that I convinced him of that one, but I did. Uh, but on the, on the youth transition thing, I think that like, I think by the end of like that little chunk of the conversation, he was at least making some sympathetic noises about like my point about why, it's really not like saying that you can't get a tattoo as a kid, you know, like, uh, I, mean, I have to give him credit. I was thinking like, he's, you know, an affable host. And so he probably just started getting these people on and then started agreeing with those people. And then with those people, they just went to another person and then another person and another, you know, it's like he himself may have gone down the rabbit hole. I don't know. That's a charitable. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's, I mean, look, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, I mean, I don't have to spend the whole time talking about Joe Rogan, but I, I, I do think that he is probably where a lot of Americans are at, which is to say that he he doesn't have like a sort of worked out ideological worldview. Most people don't, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and he's and he's like open to conservative appeals on certain issues. You know, gotta got to shore up that athletic integrity of, you know, right. yeah, right. you know like right. college women swimming, but the, uh, but like, so he is like a little bit more open to conservative appeals on some of that. And he's like a little, but like, he's like also like, when you give him like sort of core kind of social democratic economic stuff, he's like, yeah, that's obviously sounds right. Right. You know, which had like, I, I kind of think that profile is like, everybody's probably got like a cousin or brother-in-law or something who's like, if you had an in-depth conversation with him about politics, like he would like be like that. Right. Yeah, like, sure. <laughs> well, that, is, that actually really does point to something that's really interesting about the democratic party and the left, which is, you know, when you make the argument, the economic arguments, pretty much everybody, oh, there's a lot of people, anyone who like doesn't own the business is pretty yeah. much with you. But then once it gets into those social issues, it's like, you know, the, the lines get a little fuzzy. And and then the Democrats have been painted to be, and the liberals have been painted to be just the social issues to the exclusion of like what we're saying about economic issues. Do you know what I mean? No, I absolutely know what you mean. And like, I think that like, obviously it would be morally wrong to just like drop like support for trans rights and things like that. But I think that, I think that, where you do have to make an accommodation with reality is that if you just come into it with the, with the mindset that anybody who doesn't already agree with us about that stuff is a bad person. Right. Then like, I just, I didn't, I think it's gonna be really self-isolated. Like, I think you can like stand up for what you think about it, yep. but like, you know, I mean, obviously not if the person you're talking to is just like a wildly hateful bigot. Right. You know, but like right. if, if the person you're talking to just like, you know, it's like kind of like, yeah, but what about this or that? Right. You know, and then like you can just talk to them like they're a person and, you know, and it's not a guarantee. Right. But I mean, I think it's the only thing that I think it's the only thing that maybe could work. And again, even in that part of the conversation, like he he seemed to be agreeing with me about the end about, you know, youth transition. And he seemed to be 
and like he i got him to like you know sort of affirm a couple times that it was like really important that anti-discrimination laws like they expanded coverage under identity like whatever you think about these weird edge cases like that you know that at least that right he was definitely uh on board for and yeah like you said i, mean, I think the most surprising that's, that's huge I mean, to have him be on board in front of his audience about this is kind of a big deal, Ben. Good work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the most surprising thing was the anti-CRT laws because, like, James Lindsay's been on the show, right? So, yeah. like, this is, uh, yeah. you know, so I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched that episode. I don't know. Maybe he, he I don't know what he said to Lindsay, but I, I think it's entirely possible that this is the first time somebody ever gave him the, like, you know, the case against the CRT yeah. laws that's not just like you know saying everybody who supports them is a racist and leaving it at that or something hey I have a question for you after having been um, like obviously talking about thinking about covering the Ukraine crisis oh um, Jesus yeah now I don't want to pivot this is not a hundred percent no no it's, 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 I'm, I'm pretty happy to do that so yeah. it's related to Joe Rogan okay I saw I saw um, the Ukrainian uh, Prime Minister, Prime Minister, President, President, Ukrainian yeah, President. Zelensky. Yeah, Zelensky. I saw him make his speech, which, you know, six million people had watched by the time I watched it, like right after it came out. And it was so incredibly moving. And you wrote the book about like canceling comedians while Rome burns. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to kind of pick your brain or talk to you about the fact that the man is a comedic actor. He's a, com- he is a comedian. So is Joe Rogan. We have comedians yeah. in all of these positions of like political influence now. And I think there's something fascinating about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, I brought up Zelensky's background as a comedian to uh, David Feldman. He's like, well, he's a comic actor, right? You know, so it's like, he, you know, he's like making this distinction, like, well, come on, Zelensky didn't come yeah, up because... through the clubs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but like comedians can't, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like comedians can't be smart. They're only like court jesters and stupid and making penis jokes. But, you know, we have like, you know, there was Jon Stewart and there's John Oliver and there's, uh, Joe Rogan, who he, he is a, you know, he was slash is a comedian. Jimmy Dore, some of these people. Yeah. There's no, a lot true. of people who are fucking comedians who are actually out there trying to tell the truth or have these big sort of audiences and big. And now this guy who's like, you know, yeah, at the right. pinnacle there's of the this, world stage right now. Yeah, there's this, the, right. There's this like giant international crisis where like one of the main, you know, players is this uh is this comedian and uh and also for like two weeks while that was going on the world was talking about another comedian so there there you go right Uh, right so (laughs) uh, yeah no that's that's very true i don't know why that is i think uh i wonder if like some of it at least is a function of i mean i don't i mean i can't really speak to you know i'm not going to pretend that I've suddenly become an expert on Ukrainian politics, right? You know, like, yeah. I, know, I, know, I know that everybody else has, but I'm trying not to. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, but, like, um, but certainly, at least in the U.S., I mean, I guess there was a time when the media 
was like pretty institutional, right? That like you could get the only way to kind of get in front of a bunch of um, like a vast number of eyeballs at the same time was that you were, you know, like, like there was like an institution, like a TV network that, you know, that said, yeah, you're our, you know, you're our guy. You're going to be the one who hosts the show or whatever. And now that, and it's interesting because you mentioned John Stewart and the daily show was like kind of, a weird transitional fossil because it was still a TV network. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I mean, it, the daily show was a, you probably know this, but the daily show was like, you know, making fun of E entertainment television stuff until Jon Stewart got there and said, dudes, let's say, if we're going to say something, let's say something that means something. And right. let's like not punch down at people who don't have power. Like they were making jokes about the homeless. And there was this like whole, there was this whole revolution that he started at that show where the writers who were there before he got there were pissed off because they wanted to just write what they were writing and have him say the lines. And he uh -huh. was like, no, dude, we are going to make this into something. And he did. I mean, you know, he was like George, the George Bush, you know, George W. Bush, anti-George W. Bush brigade at the time when we thought it couldn't get any worse than anti George than George W. Bush. But were we wrong? We were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's in some ways, right. I mean, I, I still think I would still argue that in some ways, George W. Bush is like the, um, like the gold medalist for, uh, for like damage done to the world, you know, <laughs> as, uh, as, as, as president. I mean, it's complicated because there are definitely ways that Trump was worse, but like, I, I've got to, I've got to say, like, I think the invasion of Iraq alone, like, yeah. it, it, it's just hard to, you know, like, I'm not saying you couldn't top it if you really worked on it, right? You know, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, he, you know, was still sort of taken seriously as a leader, even though we all yeah. made fun of him. He was still considered, whereas Trump was this terrible buffoon, this monstrous buffoon that you know, could have stumbled into something heinous, you know, <laughs> I don't think, but Bush was like, okay, let's get Cheney in here and plan something terrible. You know, it was a little more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think especially on, um, yeah. Like, I mean, domestically for the most part, Trump was just like a regular Republican. Like he was like definitely more evil on immigration, but outside of that for like, for the most part, he just did the things that Republicans do. You know, he, he appointed, like the worst schools in the world, the Supreme Court and, you know, the National Labor Relations Board. He got rid of regulations and, you know, but like that's all just regular Republican stuff. And like in terms of foreign policy, it always just seemed like he would just have these bizarre mood swings and there was just no telling. Like, is he, is he going to is he going to wake up and feel like, you know, doing peace negotiations with North Korea or is he going to wake up and like get into some like huge Twitter beef, you know, with the, uh, yeah. the you know, with right. the dear leader of North Korea, and, uh, yeah, right. Right. you know, is, is, is he going to, you know, is he going to like sort of do diplomacy and de-escalation or is he going to assassinate Soleimani and like bring us closer to war with Iran than like we've ever been ever. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's all over the place. Like I, I think that, so, like, even when people are like, okay, what would Trump be doing if he were president right now when this thing is going on with Russia? It's like, I think the only honest answer is. Oh, no, I've lost you. Somehow I don't hear you. 
<laughs> oh man. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know. I, it's like it's, it's like because it's like I don't know. I mean, what would like if Ivanka talked to her recently? Talked to him most recently? He might do one thing. If like yeah. you know, if if um, like whoever. I don't know if like Steve Bannon was back and he talked to him more recently, it would have been like the opposite. Maybe it's like, a, a, I mean, if, if he was like feeling a little gassy that afternoon, like, you know, <laughs> like, like who knows, right. It's, it's just like any, anything is possible. Yes. Oh. I, I think, um, I think George Carlin sort of like opened the door for people to be political in their comedy and so many people have gone in that direction that it's really interesting what has happened you know um it's just and comedians get portrayed as again like these idiots like buffoons kind of silly not too smart but in order to do the work of making something funny you have to be able to kind of see something that others don't put concepts together that others are not and and make get people on your side get people to understand what you're saying tell truth in a way that can use like narrative aka also known as lies you know <laughs> to to kind of get to some sort of truth it's just fascinating that the skills that are necessary to be an effective comedian have become you know people have become like leaders of countries leaders of like the highest with the biggest audience, you know, for lack of entertainment, newstainment person, um, affecting our culture. It's amazing to me that that's happened. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that is, that is amazing. I should say, by the way, uh, if anybody wants to call in, like, we'll, uh, we'll keep going for another few minutes, you know, if, if we have a call, like anything you want to ask, uh, Juliana or I about, uh, but, but yeah, that is interesting. The Carlin case, is interested too because I feel like there was this there was this weird thing that happened in the two thousands that Carlin seemed like he was a pioneer for, but then like by like sort of late Bush administration, there was this thing where like ev- like every comedian would do bits about religion and they all kind of sounded like they were like it was like Richard Dawkins. Uh, like the, you know, like do you do you remember that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like yes. the way that like, like David Cross and you know Pat Oswald and you know whoever like would would all be, sorry, you know would uh, hold on, Lucy, come on, you don't scare anybody. Yeah, Lucy, uh, what's up? <laughs> it's a squirrel, dude. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, you know, yeah, they'd all be doing this like sort of. Um, They'd all be doing this religion is bullshit comedy, and that's uh, and that's something that I feel like maybe I'm wrong. I feel like that's largely gone away because the culture war has just fundamentally changed since then. Yeah, true. Like you know, has even... anyone else as a not as a total non sequitur here? But you said we only have a minute or two. Has anyone else been having the we didn't start the fire run through their heads? <laughs> Yep. Thank you, Ben. I I I I actually have that. That is that is very. I I think I think I actually quoted that to somebody like a week ago. I no, really. Yeah. No, I clip the sound. Trouble in the Ukraine. You know, (laughs) trouble in the Ukraine, and just put it on my show. 
But then I knew YouTube would take it down and I'd get in trouble. Yeah. But yes, I'm so glad that we can share this. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. What the uh, hell was going on in the Ukraine in the 80s when Billy Joel made that song? I don't even know. That is a really good question. Like, did he just kind of open up a map and he's like, I don't know, where's like really far away that I could... Uh, <laughs> got to be something going on, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or, or is there like... Because I know he had like... I, I think I remember hearing when he's uh, writing the lyrics to that song, he had like all these like newspaper clippings in front of him and he was like kind of going through them looking for inspiration. So maybe something was going on. I certainly don't know what it was, but funny. let's, uh, let's take uh Kusha. What's on your mind? Hello, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. And <clears throat> hello as well, Giuliani. Thank hello. You to, uh, speak with you for the first time. You as well. Great. So, uh, I understand that this conversation, uh, in the subscription, it's rooted around the ongoing apocalypse. And I think it's a very important, uh, topic to be very mindful of in a serious matter if possible. Of course, with some humor, dark humor, and so on as well, uh, to help us get by. But that the threat of, uh, thermonuclear destruction is getting close as far as I know. I'm not one of those, um, scientists involved with the midnight a clock or what have you, but similar yeah. to what we saw in the 1960s. Um, if you've seen Oliver Stone's documentary series, I really loved it, The Untold History of the United States. He talks mm-hmm. about in one of the episodes about how literally it was just one person who saved the world from destruction. I don't know if you know his name or not, but I believe he deserves a lot of credit because the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis is coming up in October of this year. His name is Vasily, his name was Vasily Arkhipov. But he was one of three... uh, You were about to say that? Oh, no, no, no. Keep going, keep going. Thank you. I was about to say he was one of three officers on a Soviet submarine called the B-59. And the policy was for that submarine, um, probably for other ones too, but for that submarine that all three officers had to unanimously agree to authorize a nuclear launch. And two of the other officers agreed to authorize the launch, but Arkhipov disagreed. Basically, they were... Uh, you know, they had lost contact um, because there was too much radio traffic and whatnot. And, you know, the connection got severed somehow, technical difficulties. And they essentially, two of the three officers on that submarine thought that, you know, the nuclear holocaust had already started and that they needed to send out a missile. Well, thanks to Arkhipov being cautious, they didn't do it or else the U.S. would have retaliated and the world would have blown up. And this threat is very legitimate at the moment as well, because... Putin has shown he's not afraid of escalation, as we saw with his invasion of Ukraine. And what we just saw, I saw this morning when activist Sean King shared it. But this destruction in Kharkiv and just the public square being ripped apart, so many civilians being destroyed and and it being blown up like it was nobody's business, that uh, this threat of escalation should not be viewed lightly at all, especially with nuclear um, demise as a potential outcome. And I think that what I think of, given that this is Russia and the U.S. and NATO involved in this escalation, and I think back to what the Bolsheviks did during World War One, and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, I don't know how to pronounce it too well, maybe I got it right or wrong. But anyhow, what the Bolsheviks and Lenin did by immediately surrendering as soon as it was feasible to uh, Germany and the Central Powers, I, I think that... <clears throat> the United States needs to show to Putin, I mean, obviously he has power right now, so he has to be dealt with. 
I don't want him to have power. I believe the anti-war protesters and freedom lovers around the world need to stand in solidarity, continuously protesting, repeatedly calling out his crimes and condemning him. Not to say there's no condemnation of George Bush and Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and Trump and Joe Biden and whatnot. Not at all. But that at this moment... He's the one who's... He's the one who's... Uh, who's overseeing a war of imperial aggression right now this second yeah exactly and that but for now i think like the bolsheviks showed like the u.s and nato i don't think Biden's willing to do this but they need to fully commit to expand stopping an expansion into ukraine and they need to fully commit immediately or as soon as feasible to reducing the nuclear weapons arsenal to show putin that look you don't need to be on such high guard of continued escalation mowing down hundreds of civilians like you know like hens just stop it right now. We're not going to be that big of a threat. We as in the U.S. government. I'm not speaking as if I'm a U.S. government and I make decisions. Obviously, the U.S. government carries out so many war crimes and atrocities that I condemn fully. But in Biden's shoes, that's what the U.S. and NATO need to say. And that NATO needs to be reduced further. Like, stop having other entities in NATO, uh, Turkey's NATO role. Like, all the funding and membership needs to continue in this reduction so Putin can be showed no more killing in Ukraine. Any more minutes of war is disaster, and we need to stop it as soon as we possibly can. And I believe that that's a very important lesson to go back to history and view. Because if we look back at, like, Saddam Hussein with the Iran-Iraq war that I mentioned to you before, Ben, he was the yeah. escalator in that situation. He was goaded, and he went all in with a war. The Islamic public started rejecting his congratulations by telegram. They started inciting the Shia clerics in Iraq, and Saddam went for it. He didn't mind. He was willing to be aggressive as possible. Hirohito did that by invading uh, China, Hitler with Czechoslovakia and Poland, Putin with Ukraine. Like, this this has to be shown to him. Oh, Obviously, are. he's not the same as Hitler and Hirohito and others. Sure, I'm not sure. saying that. But it needs to be shown to him that, look, we're not willing, the, as in the U.S. government, is not willing to allow the entire world to blow up. So we're going to reduce NATO as it should have been. As even Kissinger said, NATO should. Henry Kissinger, one of the worst war criminals in the world, who led to the destruction of Salvador Allende's Chile, led to people like Victor Jara in Chile being slaughtered, who led to Nixon's operations like Operation Menu in Cambodia and Southeast Asia. Like, even he knew through his ridiculous atrocities, he still knew through his real politique that Ukraine being a part of NATO is only going to lead to more destruction, disaster, that even he thought should have been avoided. And that's why I think yeah. it needs to happen. I would love to hear the reflections of both of you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. word. You know, that's, uh, I, I, I think, yeah, Juliana, what are you going to say? Yeah, no, I remember that movie, and thank you for bringing that up, because I do remember exactly what you're talking about, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, it's a miracle, or whatever. You know, I just, that one person stood up and basically saved the world in that moment, and um, I, I was kind not that I'm any fan of Hillary Clinton, but I thought it was interesting that she um, went on MSNBC last night and spoke and said basically that she's hoping that like the Russian people and what she meant by Russian people, she said, you know, those people sitting across from Putin at those very long tables because he won't sit next to anyone. Those are the people we're relying upon to do something. And I was like, I think she's calling them to put out a hit on Vladimir Putin and end the party. I, I really think that's what she was saying, kind of that the U.S. would be fine with that. Without yeah. saying, yeah, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm friendlier to that part. I think that the, I think the more disturbing part of her comment was, 
when she basically seemed to be like you know wishing for like some super protracted war in Ukraine, like like uh, like the Soviet war in Afghanistan in the eighties. Oh, which... I must have missed that part. I only saw the one part that she said because yeah. I was so yeah. stunned at it that I, you know. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I mean, look, I I think that um, you know, I think that if there were, uh, I think that if um, you know, obviously if something happened with Vladimir Putin, right, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. But I, I guess, I guess I do <laughs> like the part that I do vibe with about you know Kusha's point is that uh, it's just. Okay, um, so, you know, Russia is, you know, the Russian government is doing something awful in uh, in Ukraine right now and causing all kinds of death and destruction and making the world a much more dangerous place. Uh, and, and, you know, they are probably going to succeed. I mean, I think that I've seen a lot of, I mean, you know, who knows, right? I mean, it's not like I have some, like, special insight into military, anything going on in the ground, but... Like I, my instinct is to be skeptical when I see all this stuff. It's like, oh, you know, all this Ukrainian resistance. You know, it's it's gonna be it's much harder than they thought. It's like, okay, okay, guys, it's been it's been six days, right? Like it's right. Uh, you know, like invading Iraq took three weeks, and the mismatch between the United States and Iraq is like a lot bigger than Russia and Ukraine. So you know, I think that uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't expect it to be over in six days, but. Uh, but unfortunately, they are probably going to succeed, at least in the short term. And then there's going to be, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it will be. I mean, like, I think it's kind of a grotesque thing to, to wish for. But I mean, I'm sure it will be a little bit like one of these, like, forever awful quagmires like Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, because that's just kind of what happens when you do stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, I, I guess in terms of U.S. response, I mean, the, like, I think that... Yeah, I think that the idea, you know, there's all this, I don't I don't know, maybe this is simple-minded, but, like, it just seems like the way that Americans talk about foreign policy, when something horrible is going on somewhere else, there's always this impetus that, like, people talk about, oh, you need to do something, and do something always seems to mean bomb someone. And it just huh. seems yeah. like, you know, is, is that literally the only thing you could do, right? Like, like, are there other things that you could do, like ramp up humanitarian assistance or uh you know like and and yeah i mean i do think i've got to say i mean i know people will hear this as both sidesism and blah 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 but like i don't see any way in which nato continuing to exist after the warsaw pact ended in 1991 has has made the world a better and safer place well you know what it's done it's allowed the arms industry to have a huge market. That's, you know, NATO. Once you join, you have to have a certain number of military. You have to have a certain type of armaments. They have to be up to, like, NATO's code, which continues to move the bar forward. So everyone has to buy the latest, newest gadget. And that is basically just a market for the arms industry. So it's just, you know, it's about selling guns, which a lot of things are, and tanks, of course, and fighters, and anything that's really an armament. So I think if we could look at how to remove the profit motive, I'm sorry to get like all sure, totally sure. full on socialist on you here, but like if we nationalize, yeah, I hate that. yeah, sorry. If we nationalize or, you know, if we nationalize the arms industry, or if we just yeah. make it so that 
you know, the arms industry, whatever, they made in Q4, Lockheed Martin, one company, made $17.7 billion in the in Q4, one quarter of one year this last quarter. And that was after we pulled out of Afghanistan, right? So they're just making bank. You guys, you know, you probably don't need the exact figures, but I happen to have it right now. They, they I, I, NATO is basically just a market. And the the if you look it up, you'll see that during the 90s, the late 90s, when there was a push for the expansion of NATO, uh, that push was uh, obviously lobbied for by these huge military, you know, arms manufacturers. So this is really all about where can we sell the arms to? And if we dry up, (laughs) if we dry up either the demand or the supply, that would be helpful. I'm thinking... Make those armament. Sorry to go in a whole circuitous route here, but no, that's if, great. If we take, no problem. If we take those arms companies and we say, listen, if you, I mean, we're going to need arms. It's the human race. It's Earth. I'm not saying like, oh, everything will be a plowshare. I'm not a, right, right. you know. Kat, I don't. Kat said uh, said Superman to throw it all into the sun. Uh, yeah. Like whichever whichever movie that was. Yeah. Exactly. So we're going to need arms, right? So whoever works in the factory gets a living wage with health care. Whoever is an administrator gets, uh, you know, a salary commensurate, but not more than ten or twenty percent above the people who are actually making the stuff with their hands in on the work floor. And it will, these companies cannot be publicly traded. If there is any money made off these companies, they go back into uh, social programs in the United States or peacekeeping programs in the United States or abroad. That's it. It's not, it's time that this is too dangerous for the market to decide. This is too, you know, this industry is one yeah. that needs to be pulled off the fucking market. And how long are we going to let this go on? How long? Are, I mean, they're about to nuke us. And you're, the caller the caller was right uh, about how this is a very serious situation. But, you know, I can't live life being terrified of nuclear. I was going to die at some point anyway. So I figure, <laughs> yeah. okay, fiery death, not my favorite way to go. But... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I have been living quite a lot in the dark humor place about this for the last week because it just seems like uh, uh, you got to do that or ignore it or or yeah. just be very. Well, I'm not kidding about the, you know, nationalizing. No, no, I, no, I think I think it's I think it's a great I think I, I think I'm, I'm glad you said it. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I think that there should like, look, yeah, sure. Can you like not like can you entirely stop producing weapons? No, but. Uh, you know, if you do need to produce weapons, let's not create a profit incentive. Uh, yes, for, you for know, for those, machines. yeah, Absolutely. and for those those weapons Absolutely. to be sold around the world. I mean, that crazy. Like, I mean, just, I mean, I'd heard that before, but I mean, just hearing you describe it just now about the rules for NATO is just like every time I hear that, it's like what. You know, it's like this is like this is like opening up a franchise or getting like a Mary Kay thing or something. It's like, oh, you know, well, you're required to buy this and that, you know, yeah, as part, exactly. as, as part well, of it. I really appreciate, yeah, I really appreciate Juliana's example of raising to a, I didn't know the exact figures for Lockheed Martin's uh, fourth quarter profits in 2021. I know how much devastation they caused around the world, whether that's Iraq, yeah. Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. Uh, Yemen and so on, but I didn't know that there was 70.7 billion. I know the stocks continue soaring whenever there's war, 
I think it really takes me back to another figure Oliver Stone talks about in that documentary series that Juliana mentioned she watched, which is Smedley Butler, who said it very straight up. He's one of the most... Right, War is a Racket. In, yeah, War is a Racket. And he had 16 medals he received, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And he said, like, I was able to operate on multiple continents, whereas mm. some, you know, mafiosos, they try to operate in, like, multiple counties or whatnot. Yeah. And I think what I'd like to um, just finish my thought before I hear some more yeah. from you both is what I saw an article from The Guardian, and maybe you two saw it, maybe you didn't, but it was published uh, very recently by Jennifer Rankin who, in November 4th, 2021. And the title is Ex-NATO Head Says Putin Wanted to Join Alliance Early On in His Rule. And it goes exactly to what Juliana is saying in the sense that, like, they need a boogeyman. NATO, exactly. the U.S., they need a boogeyman. Putin could have just very well been an ally of this. They don't mind having autocrats. They got Turkey in there. Like, Erdogan's not an autocrat, brutal, Kurd-killing, civilian-oppressing. Uh, he's not He's not murderous. He went into Syria, destroying many civilians' lives, Rojava in northern Syria. I mean, like, they don't mind that much, just as long as you're their guy, their person, their autocrat, their thug. Which, which, is, which, was, which was the original, you know, the original hope for Putin, that, that he was, he was going to be, he was going to be our autocrat, right? You know, before he, before things fell apart and he decided to become his own autocrat, you know, that... Uh... Exactly, Ben. It's like the third category I raised to you when I said, like, the U.S. has different ways they view their autocrats and dictators. One, steadfast allies. Two, like people who are quasi enemies, always enemies, or one step away. Three, those who are intended allies or actual allies who go rogue, like the Islamic Republic of Iran, like mm-hmm. Rafael Trujillo of Dominican Republic, like Saddam Hussein. Um, and as well, we see it here, or like Manuel Noriega in Panama. We see it with Putin, like you, like you know, uh, Putin was the successor for Boris Yeltsin. He was handpicked. And then he went rogue on his own way. They, they were trying to get across with him. It didn't work out between the two parties. And so that's exactly what happened. They don't mind the, the autocracy at all. It's they, yeah. they, they don't mind them being their own rogues. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, Putin would not be in power if the United States had pushed uh, the thumb on the scale that hard for Yeltsin in 1996. And, uh, and you know, as recently as the Bush administration, George W. Bush said uh, he looked into Putin's eyes and he saw his uh, soul or something like that, right? I, I don't, I don't remember exactly, but yeah, remember. you know, it was that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which yeah. you know, I guess uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think George W. Bush seeing something in, in Vladimir Putin's soul that he liked, uh, I guess, makes yeah. some kind of sense. But uh, let's okay. let's get yeah. uh, let's get one more caller before we go. Uh, thank Scott. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Scott. Hey, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, so so I'm I'm a little bit off topic. I I called in yeah. for your Joe Rogan show. Yeah, no I'm things. happy to I'm happy to do a couple minutes of Rogan before we go. Awesome. It's it's not about Rogan, but it's it's about you know you guys were talking about free speech. Mm-hmm. That's what my question is. Um, you're, you're familiar with the paradox of tolerance? Yeah. Yeah. Car- it, it, so, it, yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, the essentially you can't allow intolerance because they will eventually take over and oppose their own tolerance. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, is essentially uh, how, how do we balance that between with the rights of free speech, of if, if you know the, you, you talked about the ACLU and 
mm-hmm. marks there. And obviously that's, that's groundbreaking in the legal case. Um, but there, it, it's difficult for me to, mm-hmm. you know, match my feelings about free speech with my, you know, me, my comfort level with allowing Nazis to be sure. openly involved with, you know, marching in a new Jewish neighborhood in Skokie. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know if there's flaws in that, that paradox or whatever, but I was just wondering about your thoughts on that kind of perspective. Yeah, sure. Thank you for the call. Um, I guess what I would say before throwing to Giuliana is that, so, so yeah, that's something Karl Popper talks about. I think it's like in a footnote or something that he has in uh, Open Society and its enemies. And he, and the funny thing is, if you actually read what he says, he doesn't even like conclude like, therefore, we should like take away free speech rights for the intolerant. He just kind of like brings it up as like a possible reason why somebody would, uh, you know, would want to, uh, you know, like some like a sort of not crazy reason to want to do that, which is just, I've got to say a little bit funny because like there's a sort of meme version of that that just sort of presents it as like this is like the definitive thing that, you know, we should definitely do. And, and I guess the thing, like, I guess my, I guess my main thought is this, right? Like, if you think that the Nazis are about to, or, you know, whatever the, you know, uh, black shirts are about to march on Rome and you know, install Mussolini or something like that, then obviously that's a different situation. And things might be justified to stop that from happening that would be unjustified in other circumstances. But I also think that there are a lot of reasons, both sort of in principle and pragmatically, to, especially for the left, to be super-duper wary of of censorship. And I think those, mm-hmm. like you know, progressive Jewish lawyers who uh, worked for the ACLU and fought for the right of, you know, the Nazis to march in Skokie. I mean, it's not, be, you know, they didn't do that because they love Nazis, right? They, they did that uh, because I think they, for one thing, they correctly understood that the way that, you know, the laws work, it's not like there's a precedent that's going to be applied, set for the Nazis and that it's, that's going to be like the Nazi only precedent, right? You know, that, that's that, that it's not going to... See, now I think that is... <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think uh, it right. is going to be the Nazi only precedent. They're not going to fight for our rights. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I don't. I agree with that last part, right? They're definitely yeah. not going to fight for our rights. But I think that also, like, um, you know, if you, like, if that case, you know, had had gone the way of saying that, um, and I think it went through a bunch of appeals. I'm actually not totally sure, you know, where the resolution of that case. But like, if a case like that had. Um, had gone in the direction of you can like you can just stop them from you know you can just stop them from marching because their message is so odious then what i'm saying is i don't think that precedent would have only applied to nazis i think that that would have that would have been used against like anti-war protesters and you know etc 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 uh, going uh, going forward i mean in canada there have been attempts to use the uh, hate speech laws against people advocates of BDS, you know, boycott divestment and sanctions, you know, on, on behalf of the Palestinians. Mm. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I think that it, it just seems to me that you can't really fully, 
separate these things that I think that, uh, that there are like the sort of same kind of like whether we're talking about like laws, like Supreme court cases or whatever, or we're talking about just like corporate censorship, like, you know, what should, you know, what should Spotify do? What should YouTube or Twitter do? I, I think that like, it's, these are all double-edged swords. And, um, and I, I guess my, I guess this is the last thing I'd say before I go to Juliana. I think that, from my perspective, I worry a lot less about um, like some sort of like demented and evil like Nazi reenactors, you know, who who want to like put on swastikas and march through the street. I worry a lot less about them doing their thing than I do about like what we were just talking about, right? About like the about Raytheon, you know, doing its thing, and. And I think that, um, so, I mean, this is, I think, actually, like, a fundamental difference of opinion between me and some other people, you know, who have, I think, broadly good progressive political instincts, that it seems to be that a lot of times uh, I see a lot of people who seem to be most worried about ideas that are, like, worse than the status quo being allowed to be expressed, and... I think I'm just worried about ideas that are better than the status quo not being allowed to be to be expressed because you know I I don't think we're going to get the uh I don't think we're going to get like the um you know I mean I think I think like January 6 is about as close as we're going to get to you know to Nazis you know uh marching well, on, you know <laughs> mar- mar- marching march DC and it was pathetic right like the like like what actually happened they had uh uh Sean- I mean, I mean, they were they, they were completely like everybody, you know. I mean, even Trump, like you know, kind of tried to disassociate himself from them, and they had, uh, and uh, and they they all had the you know like they didn't, you know, they had like they had their sort of their moment for like a second, and it was like that old Far Side cartoon with the dog that's standing on top of the overturned car, like what do I do now, right? You know, because they chase cars, like they huh. they. You know, I don't know. So, so I, I think I'm, I'm much more worried about corporate America, like using these tools to to suppress uh, the left that I am worried about, like you know, about like sort of old, old style fascists. That 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 would be that would be my big point about that. I know I, I know I haven't. Uh, so so just before we go back to you though, I, I did talk for a while there. I do want to hear from Juliana about this. Well, I just have a brief thing to interject, and I agree with most of what you said there, Ben, and I think it's interesting to hear you. Uh, But, like, it's all very important when we live under a rule of law. And now that those things are eroding, and we're kind of looking into a society that is not... (laughs) where the rule of law is being undermined as much as possible so that the rule of authoritarianism um, can, can... rise to the fore it's like what levers of power do we have to try to keep you know i don't know just to to try to let the voices of peace and freedom be as loud as they possibly can and um i don't want to say like suppress those other voices because if the more you suppress them the more they pop out but it it seems like it's a good argument when when we're when we're living under the rule of law, but now that they're trying really to to overthrow a democracy, overthrow the rule of law, 
I mean, a democracy such as it is, a corporate sure, takeover sure, sure. democracy, that's just understood here in this kind of conversation. But I just, I, you know, I don't know if that, it just leads to a whole larger conversation in my mind. Yeah. It's important, it's an important argument to be had before maybe January 6th when all of a sudden you kind of see what you're dealing with. Like, oh, yeah, you know, no, I mean, I, I mean, I get it, right? I get what you're saying. Like, it definitely, it 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 is like an insane escalation on one level. That like that, uh, that especially the fact that like Trump, as still just barely president at that point, was willing to you know play footsie with with that, right? Yeah, like, that's 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 crazy. But on the other hand, I mean, I guess. I mean, it's not even of, that, but some of like the, you know, the Supreme Court's ruling on Citizens United, that they're, that corporations are people. I mean, that is just so not, nor, that's not what was intended, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, so that corporations can do whatever they want. You know, it's like the twisting of the intent that anyone could see just by looking, even people without law degrees, without philosophy degrees, any, you know, it, it, it's. It's concerning. Fair enough. Uh, Scott, did, did you want to have a last thought about that? Yeah, just just that, that my thought about it was that the danger in in the whole paradox is who gets to decide what is intolerant. Right. Because the religious right and trans activists have very different views on who is being tolerant. And so, you know, trying to protect against that intolerance have unforeseen danger yeah no I, I think I, sure. yeah thank you for taking my question i really appreciate it all right yeah no i think that is i think that is absolutely right uh the, the uh, one thing we can all agree on is what he just said yeah 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 for <laughs> sure and i mean thank i think it, that i think that the i think that the the like who decides point is really important because um like, I, there's a point, there's this debate that Christopher Hitchens did in the late 2000s about free speech at some university in Canada, I don't remember which one. And in that, like, he has one of my all-time favorite openings, like, the first word out of his mouth is fire. And he says, you know, fire, fire, there, I've said it, right? And not in a crowded theater, granted, and then he kind of makes a show of looking around at this, like, nice university thing that he's in. He's like, I seem to have actually said it in the dining hall at Hogwarts. But then he was... <laughs> You know, he reminds people that that famous line about how the limits of free speech, about how you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. When Oliver Wendell Holmes said that, what he was doing was upholding the conviction of these Jewish socialists who had uh, been arrested for sedition for passing out Yiddish language anti-war literature when uh, at the, you know, opposing the draft of the U.S. entrance into World War One, And... That's kind of a perfect example because, you know, as he points out, you could argue that these Jewish socialists were, in fact, firefighters, right? That they were shouted fire in a theater that really was on fire, you know, that, uh, <laughs> that you know, World War I was a hell of a fire. And, and so, yeah, I think the who gets to decide question is, is really crucial and, and I, I think can't be overstated. But uh, I did say that was going to be the last call, but, uh, but, our, uh, but uh, Silver... Um, is a uh, uh, is is on the line and 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 for him I will take one last very short call. Are you there, Silver? Uh, you might not see. There's the little thing at the bottom to unmute yourself. It looks like a microphone. 
Okay, uh, I think this might have to be next time <laughs> if I uh, can't figure that one out. Uh, oh, okay, let's try again. Are you there? Silver? Okay. Yeah, I think that's... I, I, I think that maybe there are technical difficulties that's not happening this time, but... But, Juliana, thank you so much. This is so much fun. No, this is so much fun. I really enjoyed the callers and our conversation and everything. I always like working with you, Ben, and I appreciate everything you are doing to make the world a better place. All right. Well, right back at you. I should watch Juliana on Act TV. Uh, we'll put her links in the description when we, uh, we publish this. So thanks again. Thank you, everybody else. Left is-